0: Good morning, church. It's good to be together this morning, and I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 8. Acts, chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. We'll read through chapter 7, verse 1. Here this morning, the reading of God's word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, I thought this morning to start the sermon by wishing you the traditional happy Mother's Day, but then I thought to myself, I'm not qualified. I'm not a biologist. (laughs) Apparently, we cannot even know What a mother is, what a woman is. I know that's a kind of a silly, extreme example of foolishness, and I will not entertain that. But sadly, we do live in a day in which even a Supreme Court justice nominee doesn't seem to know a basic truth, what a woman is. So how in the world could you celebrate Mother's Day? You see, what is happening is nothing new. There is always a war on truth taking place in the world. The book of Acts shows us a picture, a historical picture of this supernatural reality. As the kingdom of God advances in the world, the kingdom of darkness pushes back. But here's the main point of Acts. Because Jesus died and rose again, the kingdom of God cannot lose. The kingdom of God will not lose come what may. Christianity expands and Christianity grows and continues to move forward, not because Christians are special or we are smart, but because the one who sustains the Christian church has all authority in heaven and also the thing we tend to forget on earth. He has all authority on earth. So those who fight against truth, fight themselves, find themselves fighting against God himself. So beginning this morning and for the next several weeks, this will become clear. Now with these things in mind, let us consider the main character of our story who will accompany us for a good while in the next few weeks, which is the main point as well in your notes if you're following along, Stephen. A man attested by God. Stephen, a man attested by God. By now, we know something about Stephen. We know that he was a Hellenist, meaning he was a Greek-speaking Jew. We also know that he was chosen by the Jerusalem church to be one of its first deacons. Moreover, Stephen is described in very specific terms. Chapter 6, verse 5 says that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. If we add what we read in verse 3, then Stephen was also a man of good reputation and full of wisdom. Undoubtedly, Stephen was a man of exemplary character, a godly man, a man to look up to, a man whose faith was worth emulating. Now, having described his godly character, And having given us a picture of true integrity in the life of this man, Luke now tells us how he lived, which takes us to verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. It is interesting to note that when taken as a whole, the description of Stephen could be summed up like this. Stephen wanted to be like his Lord and master. Stephen was a man like Jesus. Consider how Peter himself described Stephen, I'm I'm sorry, Jesus, back in chapter 2, verse 22. As he was preaching, Peter said this of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Do you see the resemblance in the description? Both Jesus and Stephen are presented to us as being attested by God with signs And wonders. This simply means, for example, in the case of Jesus, that his ministry was accompanied by signs and wonders, which were the seal of authentication. Jesus truly came from. God, likewise, now that Jesus has ascended into heaven at the right hand of God and has sent the Holy Spirit into the world, the disciples of Jesus are now given this supernatural ability to perform signs and wonders for the exact same purpose. We could put it like this. Stephen was approved by God to be a spokesman of divine truth. The signs and the wonders were the seal of authenticity. Not only that, but this also corroborates Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus himself said before he ascended, and you will receive what? Power. You will receive power. Acts chapter 6, verse 8 says that Stephen was full of power. Once again, confirming that this is from God and that Stephen stood in historical continuity with the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself is the one empowering and sending Stephen to be a preacher of truth. Once again, Stephen is just another confirmation of what Acts is all about. What is Acts all about? Resurrection power unleashed, unleashed by the Spirit in the lives of his disciples. And this is what the Christian life is, is it not? The Christian life is resurrection power, which is the power of the Spirit operating in us and through us. We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, that if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Jesus, having finished the work assigned to him by the Father, having provided the sacrifice for sins upon the cross, having appeased God's wrath by his death, and having been buried in a tomb for three days, was then raised from the grave with the same body, but now glorified. And to this glorified God-man All authority has been given in heaven and on earth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus already has all authority, and it is universal. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus already has all authority, universal, cosmic, unrivaled authority. This being the case, it is Jesus, the one exalted at God's right hand, who now has the authority to send the Spirit, his own Holy Spirit, into all the world to bless his own people. Why can't we gather here this morning and make sense of this? Is because Jesus is alive and he's on the throne. And so Jesus now puts into effect the Abrahamic blessing and he's blessing families all over the world. This fact, meaning the fact that Jesus sends the spirit will become central to our conversation in the weeks ahead. Don't miss This, Stephen, was full of who? The Spirit. Critical, critical statement. I hope this will become clear as we move along into chapter 7. But verse 8 of chapter 6 matters to the entire story because it sets the stage. When you consider Stephen, you are left wondering, what's not to be liked about this godly man? He checks all the boxes, doesn't he? Faith? Check. Holy Spirit? Check. Wisdom? Check. Grace? Check. Power? Check. Good reputation? He has it all. He has it all. It is almost as though Luke is portraying Stephen as someone you could not possibly hate. If all we had was verse 8, you would ask yourself what could possibly go wrong? Who could possibly hate this man? But then again, you have to think, if hating Stephen seems like an odd thing to do, what could possibly be said about those who hated the Lord Jesus, in whom there was no sin, neither was there deceit in his mouth? Yet, the Bible tells us he was despised. He was rejected by men, as Isaiah 53 says. If this was the case with Jesus... Should any of his servants expect anything better, any better treatment from the world? It was Jesus himself who, in John chapter 15, verse 20, said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, guess what? They will also persecute you. Stephen knew one thing. He was not greater than his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. In light of this, consider the following thoughts, my friend. There are only two kingdoms in this world. God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. You are either under the lordship of Jesus and righteousness or under Satan and wickedness. But what you cannot do is pretend to be neutral. You're always a slave. The only question is this, who is your Lord? Stephen was a servant of Jesus. But the kingdom of darkness hates the Lord Jesus and it hates his truth. A fierce war has been waged ever since the events recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And so now Luke is going to give us yet another picture of what this war looks like against the truth. But he will do so introducing one word, a very important word, which is also our next point. If you're following the notes, I have one word in mind. What is that word? Then. T-H-E-N, then. An important conjunctive adverb. What a lesson, huh? An important conjunctive adverb. Why in the world am I pointing out this little word? It's quite critical to the entire story, as I'm about to show you. We see it for the first time in verse 9. After giving us a wonderful description of Stephen's ministry, we read in verse 9, then, some of those, etc. That little word is meant to help with the flow of the story. In our passage, it functions as a type of alert to let you know that a new development is taking place in the narrative. In this case, that new development we will call escalating tensions. Escalating tensions. What I mean is this. The word then is placed strategically throughout the entire story to push the tension forward. Every time you see it, you know tensions are increasing. The word then serves as a type of signpost, indicating the hostilities between Stephen and his Jewish audience are only getting worse. And as I said, the first occurrence of this word happens in verse 9. This marks the first attempt against Stephen on the part of the unbelieving Jews. We will call this the, then let's debate him. Then let's debate him. In verse 9, we read, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen." One thing is evident just by reading this account. It wasn't so much the works that Stephen did that evoked a hostile response, but his words, his words. After all, you can't really argue with visible evidence, can you? Verse 8 makes it very clear that Stephen was performing signs and wonders. He was full of grace and power. So in the face of the undeniable evidence which could not be denied, they attacked his words. Stephen's opponents decided to attack his message, which reminds us that this is ultimately all about truth. It is always about truth. You see, people don't really care that much how good a person you might be, how many good works you might perform, how holy your life might be, as long as you keep your mouth shut. It is not so much the works, but the words that bother the world. Undoubtedly, Stephen did go around, just did not go around just performing good works, signs and wonders, healing people and healing the sick. Whatever he did, whatever the manifestation of this grace and this power, it was all accompanied by a message. A message. Again. His opponents were not debating signs and wonders. They were debating the message that came out of his mouth. We will get into the specifics in just a few moments. For now, consider the people involved in opposing Stephen. One commentator estimates that there were approximately 460 to 480 synagogues during this time in Palestine. In our passage, we read of five, the freedmen, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia, and those from Asia. Now, much could be said of each of those, but I won't get into all those details. What matters most is to realize what they had in common. I want to highlight three things they had in common. First, they're all men who belonged to synagogues, which means they were all Jewish. Second, they were all Hellenist, meaning they were Greek-speaking Jews. Therefore, What we're witnessing here is a Hellenist, meaning Stephen, having a heated encounter with his own people, with his own people. And third, these people stood together against Stephen. The word dispute has the sense of togetherness, togetherness. We don't know if those five synagogues care much about each other or not, But we do know that when it came to Stephen's message and whatever he was proclaiming, they all opposed him with equal force. They were united in their hostility against him, which reminds us of who? It reminds us of the Lord Jesus once again. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they could not stand each other. Yet, when it came to hating Jesus, they stood together. They plotted together against the Lord. They stood united under a common banner of antagonism against Christ. Why? Well, because they all understood that the message Jesus proclaimed exposed their own failures, exposed their own hypocrisy and their wickedness. Likewise, whatever Stephen was saying, whatever he was saying, whatever his message was, It did not sit well with these Hellenistic Jews. They took deep offense. But look at what happened in verse 10. They tried debating him, but verse 10 says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, Stephen's words were reflective of a wisdom from above. It wasn't that Stephen was smarter or that he was better at debating people. Rather, he was given supernatural understanding. But this is not surprising. Anyone who has ever read the gospel accounts would know that this is precisely what Jesus Christ promised his disciples. Luke, in his own gospel, recorded the following promise from Jesus to the disciples. And the context was persecution. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verse 15, Jesus promised, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. How did Jesus fulfill that promise to Stephen? By giving him supernatural wisdom by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this. Who then? Who was with Stephen as he preached? Well, Jesus by the Spirit. At this point in the story, you may not realize how utterly important that is. That as Stephen preached, Jesus was with him by the Spirit. It will become crystal clear why this matters so much as we enter into chapter 7. So stay tuned. So now we come to the second occurrence of the word then in verse 11, which marks the second attempt against Stephen. And as I said, when you see that word, you know tensions are escalating and the hatred towards Stephen is only getting worse. We will call this one, then let's frame him. Then let's frame him. It is clear that the Jews could not handle Stephen's words. Whatever it is that he was saying, they could not handle it. Debating Stephen proved useless and ineffective. Why? Well, because he spoke truth. Spirit-inspired truth. So the only weapon they had left against him was deception. And by the way, this is what darkness does this is how darkness operates operates darkness does not seek the light it hides from it in the case of these hellenistic jews they were not openly trying to understand truth they hated the truth they just wanted to silence it and this is what darkness does it doesn't want to debate they just want to silence the truth and we're seeing that all over the place today by the way it's everywhere But it is at this point that we need to pay attention, very close attention, to what is taking place. Verses 11 through 14 reveal why Stephen said the things he is about to say in chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. False charges are being brought against him, essentially two. We see them in verse 11. They falsely accuse Stephen of speaking against who? Moses and God. That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. Big charges. Now, why are they doing this? Well, by doing this, they're opening the door to the charge of blasphemy, which according to the Mosaic law was punishable by death. By now already, they want to get rid of him. They want to kill him. In other words, even before Stephen gives his lengthy speech in chapter 7, The Jews were already fed up with him to the point of murder. They want to kill him. Whatever he was saying, they wanted to kill him. So through the recourse of violence, we see in verse 12 that they seized him and brought him before the council. What council was this? The same council that has been dealing with Peter and the apostles in the previous chapters. This is the same council before which Peter had already made a defense of the gospel. It was known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. It was the Supreme Court of Israel. Even back then, the Supreme Court was having issues. Think about that. You couldn't get any higher than this. This council had the power to condemn someone even to death, although the power to actually execute was in the hands of the Romans. But this time, as we will see in the weeks ahead, they took matters into their own hands. Now, having opened... The door to the possibility of giving Stephen the death penalty due to blasphemy. In verse thirteen and fourteen, we read the specifics of the false testimony that was leveled against him. They go from the general charge of blasphemy to the more specific charge. In verses thirteen and fourteen, Stephen's opponents narrowed the entire issue down to the following. Read verses thirteen and fourteen with me. This man, this man never ceases. To speak words against what? This holy place. What do you think he's talking about? The temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. The charge of blasphemy is narrowed down to two specific charges. He speaks against the temple and he speaks against. The law. Hence, the word that I chose. Frame. Let's frame him. Here's what I mean. In the second then statement in verse 11, we see Stephen's opponents creating a false narrative, the sole purpose of which was to make him look like an enemy of the Jewish religious system. An enemy of the temple. An enemy of the law. Interesting. Interesting. If you think about the charges themselves, they tell us precisely what Stephen had been preaching prior to this moment. Did you notice that? What did Stephen preach? Well, think with me. Who else talked about destroying the temple? And who else talked about fulfilling the law? Jesus. Remember? Right after cleansing the temple and driving the money changers away, the Jews asked Jesus a question, John 2.18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are, Jesus, by coming into this temple and cleansing it? Who do you think you are? Give us some evidence that you indeed have authority to do this, to cleanse the temple like this. To said question, Jesus provided an answer. You're remembering this now. An answer they did not understand. So Jesus said, do you want a sign of my authority over the temple? Here's a sign. John 2.19. I will destroy. I will destroy what? This temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. So, yes. Yes. Jesus did say that. In fact, that was part of the mockery of the people toward Jesus as he hanged on the cross. You remember that? Mark tells us that those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Have you noticed that? It is very interesting to note that the Jews really made it a point to remind Jesus as he was dying on the cross to remind him of his own words regarding the temple. You are going to destroy it, and there you are dying. Those words really offended them. The message from the Jews was this. Don't miss this. Whatever you do, whatever your message is, don't mess with our temple. Remember that. It's going to become crucial for the weeks ahead. It really offended the Jews when Jesus spoke about destroying the temple and rebuilding it. Clearly, the meaning of those words remained hidden for most of his audience. Stephen wanting to be like his Lord, was preaching the same message, hence the charges that were brought against him. Likely, he also talked about the destruction of the physical temple in Jerusalem, but he did so in connection to Jesus Christ. And once again, the meaning of those words remained hidden to his audience. Once again, they misunderstood. But of course, Luke wants us to make, wants to make sure that we understand the charges are false, meaning whatever Stephen preached was not in opposition to the temple and the law. The Jews misunderstood, that's for sure. But what Stephen said was perfectly aligned with what Jesus himself had taught. The story was simply repeating itself. The same thing that happened to Jesus is now happening to Stephen. And the same message that led to the death of Jesus is now leading to the death of Stephen, is the same story. And at the center of it all, at the center of it all, is what? The temple. The temple. Listen, if you don't know that, chapter 7 will make no sense. At the center of the problem, at the center of the tensions, was the temple. More specifically, the nature and purpose of the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews thought Stephen is against the temple. He keeps talking about destroying it. And he keeps talking about Jesus. But is that true? Well, no, not at all. One commentator writing in the 1800s put it like this, and I quote, listen to this quote, Stephen set forth boldly the nature of the Old Testament system as a religion of the future. You need to be really thinking about this as a religion of the future and as incomplete in itself as pointing always to the New Testament and therefore shadowy and transitory, ready to merge into the substance. End quote. Let me paraphrase. Here's my paraphrase of what he said in the 1800s. Don't try to understand the Old Testament apart from the New. You can't. You can't. And this, by the way, is the reason why we are self-consciously a covenantal church and not a dispensational church. I hope this will become clear as we go through the next few weeks. Now, in the midst of this severe misunderstanding on the part of the Jews, and as Stephen stands there before the hostile council made up of both Hebrews and Hellenists, something supernatural happened, which is the next point. Stephen, a man... Like Moses, a man like Moses. Listen to what happened in verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, please don't miss this. There was someone, there was someone in that council, very important to the rest of the New Testament, who was also witnessing Stephen's face shining like an angel. I'm speaking of none other than Saul of Tarsus, the one who will soon come to be known as Paul the Apostle. He was there. He was a part of this council. He was a part of the Pharisees, and he was watching. I believe he was there. He was listening. Little did he know that soon, very soon, he himself would be risking his own life for the same message and the same Lord Stephen preached we'll get there in due time but as the men of the Sanhedrin were gazing at Stephen his face became angelic what in the world do we do with this well I think it is hard to deny the supernatural quality of this event Luke does not want us want us to miss it why is this significant here are some contextual clues The bulk of Stephen's speech in chapter 7 will be about Moses. Beginning in verse 17 through verse 44, it was all about Moses. And what is he going to say about Moses? The fathers rejected Moses, just like the Jews are about to reject Stephen. The fathers thrust Moses aside, just like they are about to thrust Stephen aside, Moses will be central to Stephen's speech in chapter 7. Why is this relevant? When Moses descended from Mount Sinai, after receiving the law for the second time, what do we see? Well, his face was shining, according to Exodus chapter 34. Why was it shining? It was to indicate that Moses was in true communion with God. Let me ask you this. Do you think the Sanhedrin, the men who knew the Old Testament and who were all about Moses, they would have remembered this? Do you think they would have remembered Moses? And now Stephen's face is shining. Why? And why now? Everything seems to point to the following. I believe this to be a communicating Two things. God is supernaturally intervening and he is communicating two things to the council. First, just like Moses' face was shining because of his communion with God, know for certain that Stephen is also in communion with God. Second, listen to this. Before you hear what Stephen has to say, know for certain that Moses himself agrees with him. Stephen will speak within the tradition of Moses. Therefore, if you hate him for it, then who do you really hate? Stephen or Moses? Could it be that the, your rejection of Stephen is just a reflection of the fact that you have already rejected Moses? Now, all this leads us to our next point of consideration Council, man without words. Have you noticed, for some reason, the Jews always fail to ask the obvious question. When the apostles left the prison empty, no one asked, how did you get out? Remember that story? Now there is a man whose face is shining like the face of an angel before their very eyes. Luke has established the fact that the entire council is looking at him. Their eyes were fixed on him. The shining face did not go unnoticed. Yet no one asked why. Personally, I think the reason for this is undeniable, clear. I think they got the point that I have already mentioned. Stephen was standing before them as a Moses-like figure about to indict them. But repentance was not even in the picture for them. So we're left with the last point. Annas. Annas, a man with a question. According to Acts chapter 4, verse 6, the one sitting in the highest chair of this council was a man named Annas, who was also the father-in-law of Caiaphas. You've heard that name before. Caiaphas had been the high priest during the trial of Jesus. But by the time Stephen enters the scene in Acts, the role had been granted to Annas. And Annas had one question. The one question that will launch Stephen into his beautiful Christ-centered presentation of the Old Testament before the Sanhedrin. Annas, the high priest, is the man responsible for setting Stephen on theological fire. But it will be them who get burned, not Stephen. Having ignored Stephen's supernatural angelic face... Annas can think of only one thing to ask. Are these things so? Are these charges that are being brought against you true? Are you speaking against the temple? Are you speaking against the law? What do you have to say for yourself? That's the setup. That's the setup. Next week, we're going to enter into chapter 7. So let me just give you a short conclusion. For the conclusion, I want us to actually enter into chapter 7. I want to conclude by showing you the third and final occurrence of that important conjunctive adverb. Then. I'm referring, of course, to chapter 7, verse 58. That is the third occurrence of the word then. And what does the word then remind you of? Escalating tensions we will call this the then let's stone him first let's debate him that doesn't work then let's frame him that didn't work well then let's stone him i call this the conclusion because what stephen is about to say in chapter 7 will lead to his actual death at the hand of an angry mob of jewish leaders by the time we reach the third then, in verse 58, the audience will be satisfied with nothing less than Stephen's own blood. They will take his life by means of stones thrown at him. Between the second then of verse 11 and the third then, last in verse chapter 7, verse 58, Stephen gave the sermon of his life. Literally the sermon that ended his life. Now in the weeks ahead, we will ask, This one question, why? Why? Why did they kill him? For now, I will leave you with a question, and I will end here. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? We will continue to consider that question as we go along, chapter 7. But let me say this, few questions hold greater weight for the Christian than that one. So let's ask Stephen himself, what do we see in him? Since he was full of the Spirit and spoke with the Spirit, what do we find in him? Certainly, to be full of the Spirit does not mean that everything works out well for us, at least not in this life. In just a few weeks from today, we will find Stephen laying in a pool of his own blood, unjustly killed for speaking truth. To be full of the Spirit does not mean we win win every argument or that we live pleasant lives free from troubles and pain or that everyone likes us. That is far from being Stephen's case, even though he was, from a spiritual perspective, exemplary. So now, no, to be full of the Spirit does not necessarily mean any of those things. What does it mean then? Well, at a basic level, to be full of the Spirit looks like faithful conviction. Faithful conviction. Conviction. If anyone should know truth, it's Christians. From Stephen, we will learn that the Spirit of God leads us into a life. Listen to this, very practical for us. The Spirit leads us into a life that is not dominated or informed by popular opinion or the latest trends or the accepted norms but by God's written revelation which centers on Christ. And this, my friends, in spite of how hostile the world might become. So what is the call for today? Very simple, let us be a people of faithful convictions. Yes, we do know what a woman is. We do know when life begins. But more importantly, we know where salvation is. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who died for our sins and rose again. Believe in him today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this simple reminder of the importance of living according to your Revelation. We thank you for the example of Stephen. We thank you for the fact that throughout church history there have been men and women who have sacrificed everything, even their own lives, for the sake of truth. Help us to be like them. Help us to be like Stephen, unafraid. Bold and full of conviction, which is the fruit of your Spirit operating in us. As we see the world decaying into greater and greater confusion, help us to stand, Lord, upon your truth, which never changes. And in a world that is confused about almost everything, help us, Lord, as Christians, as believers, to bring clarity where there is confusion, to bring light where there is darkness, even if that means great cost. So help us to be like this exemplary man, Stephen. Thank you for his example. And now we pray that you will empower us to live according to your word by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.